Welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Zara Ahmed, and you're here listening to some of the conversations myself and my co-hosts, Dr. Emma Kennedy, Jessica Crowley, and Emily Crosby have had with guests from around the world about consultation psychology. We all have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions of consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to these episodes and if you'd like any further information or interested in being a guest, please feel free to let us know and get in touch via email or Twitter. On today's episode, we're privileged to have with us Professor Cyril Pickering, a school psychologist who currently lives and works in Washington, D.C. He received his master's and PhD in school psychology from the program at the University of Maryland. Cyril was a contributor to the book, Becoming a School Consultant, which reflects on the experiences of consultation trainees as they learn the craft. His chapter, Relationship Building and Objectivity Loss, documents lessons he learned while building effective collaborative relationships with teachers. Cyril currently works in two school programs which serve youth and young adults who are incarcerated. We really enjoyed speaking with Cyril in this episode about the importance of relationship building, truly hearing teachers' concerns and believing in the process of consultation. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Cyril. It's really lovely to have you here. Hello. Hello. I'm I'm happy to be here. I guess it might be quite nice to start a little bit about you and your journey to being a school psychologist. Uh, Yeah, so I am uh, in my seventh year, so eighth year coming up of being a, a school psychologist. I uh, initially uh, decided to enter the field because uh, I was a student growing up. My, my family is in education. My mom was a teacher in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and I was one of those students who didn't really engage with school well. I was always a, a talented student, but I didn't really have uh, the connection with school that uh, that would have promoted success. Uh, to put it lightly, I gave my mom quite a few uh, headaches. And I think it was only uh, later in life uh, when I was in high school that things started to uh, click for me. Uh, and I started to uh, make the connections to about what education uh, could mean for me uh, moving forward. Uh, so going into uh, college where I went off to university, I started to develop a uh, understanding that a lot of the uh, kids who I grew up with also didn't have that connection with school uh, and th- never really connected the dots uh, for what the uh, long-term uh, benefits of education uh, would be. So when I was thinking about careers to go into, I was attracted to psychology for uh, a long time, uh, and I sought out ways to uh, put that into practice to help connect students with school to uh, become a, a source of uh, inspiration, become a conduit through which uh, I can connect students with school uh, and set them up for uh, success, uh, especially the ones who haven't, for whom school is not a very rewarding place. The way I like to put it is, I'm a, a student. Who, I'm a student who uh, hated school, who now works in schools uh, to help other students who also hate school. I'm grateful to uh, be able to go into the field with a long-term perspective, where uh, I'm measuring success in years and months rather than days and weeks. So the short-term 
uh, struggles, those are going to uh, happen. But uh, long term, uh, when you look at uh, students' progress year over year and see uh, improvements in uh, academic connection and improvements in uh, behavior, those are the uh, the outcomes that I'm looking for. That's amazing. And I guess, you know, you said that you kind of went into it to inspire students <laughs> and you're also inspiring trainee educational psychology students <laughs> um, with your chapter that you've written and I guess the chapter that you've written in the becoming a school co- consultant um, is one of the first readings that we do on the course and actually I I really loved how honest and kind of just like explicitly you laid out how you reflected on the different steps but I was just thinking if you might speak a little bit about how it was to write about your first, one of your first consultations. And- yeah, it's, it's interesting to know that even so many years past writing the, the chapter, that's still, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's having an impact, that the uh, experience hasn't gone to, to waste. Because when writing it, I wasn't uh, sure uh, how many people would actually, uh, would actually read it. It was the process of writing it was was very interesting because as a part of our consultation course, we had a chance to reflect through supervision beyond what I was used to at the time. Um, you know, of course, we received supervision for different uh, things up to that point. We were in our third year, I believe, at that point in the uh, program at the University of Maryland. But it was one of the more t- intense experiences. Uh, overall. Uh, and it was a bit cathartic to be able to put things down on the page and, uh, so that the uh, experience was uh, was preserved. Um, because uh, after going through this year-long placement and, and really having uh, my skills grow during that year through supervision, through the, the, the actual experience, through having to challenge myself to uh, push myself beyond where I started. It was a, a a good experience to sort through it from beginning to end and uh, try to uh, distill around, distill down just a handful of takeaway lessons from uh, from that experience. Um, and I think that the overall theme of the chapter of of objectivity loss was um, something that I still uh, keep in mind uh, as I'm uh, as I'm working in schools and. Uh, it was a, a lesson to me. It was a a very humbling experience overall, and to have a chance to put that in words and to uh, put my confession down on paper that I was uh, not perfect in my uh, in my training experience. That was that that was a uh, a good opportunity to have. So rather than the perfect case where everything went brilliantly and nothing ever went wrong, it really had such and continues to have such deep kind of resonance in terms of what it is actually like to learn to be a consultant, but not learn it in a dry academic sense, but be on a placement with the real consultee and with the real child. And it being real, it it, it was to make a difference for, for that child and that consultee. Just in terms of a little bit of background, Cyril, about explaining the, the sort of case and, and what had happened and the kind of setup, just so that people can kind of maybe understand a little bit more about perhaps what the task was 
who the consultee was and kind of what your role was at the time um, in, in how it had been set up. Yeah, so the the actual ca- the case was uh, relatively uncomplicated. It was one of the, uh, as you're you know, going through the initial consultation class, uh, one of uh, what may seem on the surface to be uh, a simpler situation where a kindergarten student is uh, having difficulty learning uh, letter uh, letter names and letter sounds. Um, this is about midway through the year, uh, and it was starting to concern the teacher because of the uh, relative progress that the student was making uh, as uh, compared to uh, the rest of the students uh, in the class where uh, by that time of the year, the, the rest of the students had um, had significantly more uh, letter knowledge than the student who uh, was referred, uh, who only up to that point uh, could identify uh, three or four letters. This is, again, kind of in, uh, in all uh, arrogance on my part. Uh, I went into the situation kind of presuming that uh, it would be uh, a simple um task to uh, put in place uh, some sort of uh, distributed practice uh, intervention and uh, begin to track progress and begin to uh, ensure that the uh, intervention is being uh, implemented multiple times throughout the day, whatever time is uh, convenient with good uh, fidelity. So going in, I had thought that this would be a a, a very simple uh, situation. Uh, and that was kind of one of the, the, the main lessons that uh, in what we uh, call consultee-centered consultation, uh, the consultant isn't entering that relationship as the expert telling the teacher what to do. Um, the crux of the chapter was not about developing an intervention for a student, uh, but about uh, building a relationship with the teacher uh, to work through that process, problem identification, problem solving, coming up with different intervention options, fine-tuning the intervention, uh, putting into place tracking data. So uh, that was the real lesson learned throughout throughout the process, you know, not the taking a uh, a, a overall view and uh, dictating from uh, Mount Olympus what uh, the teacher was to do, but uh, in a situation where the teacher is the one implementing things and the, and the teacher is the one who is going to uh, be on a day-to-day basis working with this student, developing with them something that um, that makes sense for the situation and working through the data with them to uh, discuss what the uh, what the graph means as the student is making progress and uh, and fighting the urge to uh, think that uh, my uh, at the time uh, somewhat fancy program enabled me some sort of superior knowledge uh, to see things the way that the teacher couldn't but uh, going through the struggle of making sure that uh, that I am uh, working as we should, as we should say shoulder to shoulder with the teacher through this process um, because the whole point of it is to uh, empower teachers. Uh, the whole point of it is to give the, uh, the, the, the problem solving process to the teacher uh, to build capacity of the system to face these kinds of problems as they come up again. So it's more than just this one student's uh, progress, though I'm, I'm glad that the student did make progress through the year, but uh, it was more so about 
uh, working with the teacher uh, and giving them the the consultation process and uh, and doing the hard work uh, on that end uh, so that the simple intervention that we uh, developed can be independently uh, applied to future students. Yeah, I think kind of like re like I rereading it because we read it in first year. I've read it again now because I'm in my or just finished my second year of training. Um, I do feel like you pick up on on different aspects, and I guess one of the things that you spoke about in terms of like objectivity loss and kind of like how that was kind of working you mentioned something about like um having different perspectives and trying to get a a shared perspective together and I found that I found that like interesting to reread but also bringing it back to the forefront of my mind when I'm doing consultations you spoke a little bit about um I think it was Ingrid Highlander's work about the the hidden fight and I just I just really loved that Um, I was just wondering if you might just say a little bit more on that. That was just a really interesting kind of thing that you brought in. Yeah, I I remember uh, kind of during supervision, the the moment when I realized, you know, we we, we talk about, you know, the things that cause teachers frustration, where they uh, feel like they uh, don't have enough skills or enough information and or, you know, different things that uh, prevent them from being able to engage with the problem and, and being able to uh, intervene successfully. Uh, and I remember from the beginning, from the very beginning of that discussion, uh, objectivity loss is the one that uh, interested me the most. That you know, how could a student, how could a teacher lose objectivity with a student not be able to see things uh, the way that they are? Um, and as I mentioned, the, we received pretty extensive supervision uh, where we would record our sessions with. Uh, with teachers and have to uh, have to transcribe them and uh, identify themes. Uh, and as we proceeded, I got more and more re- reflective on not just what was happening on the ground, but my process with the teacher and what was actually going through my head when uh, when I said certain things. Uh, so I was really pushed and pressed to to identify when I lost objectivity, when my frustration with what was happening or not happening, ha- what was happening or not happening really hindered my work and hindered my ability to actually hear what the teacher was saying and be able to uh, reflect what uh, what her concerns were uh, and be able to interact with her in a way uh, met her needs and, and, and her concerns. As I say, it was, it was a really humbling uh, experience because, you know, the, at, at that point, you know, even at that point, I considered myself kind of, you know, well versed in uh, the consultation process. We'd been drilled on it for uh, for quite a long time and, uh, and talked about the problem solving process. So I thought that, Again, it was a very simple sort of intervention. Um, I didn't expect that the that the year long weekly meetings with uh, with this teacher uh, were going to kind of arise the the, the emotions in me that they uh, that they brought up, arise some of the uh, frustrations that I had uh, in general in a way that wasn't obvious if, if you were listening to uh, the interaction, if you were kind of the proverbial fly on the wall. Uh, listening to what was going on. Um, but as I uh, listened to uh, the recordings um, and received feedback through uh, through supervision and were re- really asked questions, you know, why did you ask this? Uh, why are you asking so many questions and not 
uh, using the other uh, communication skills like reflecting emotions, restatements. Uh, what are you driving at? What are you trying to uh, push the teacher towards? Um, it really forced me to to confront the fact that uh, I was having this. I don't even want to want to say passive. I don't want to say passive aggressive. I, I don't think it was passive aggressive. I think it was me trying too hard to uh, push the teacher in a particular direction to see things. Uh, the way I saw them, uh, rather than uh, working authentically through the process and letting uh, the data that was coming out um, be the data uh, and coming to an understanding of what her her interpretation was, uh, coming to an understanding of what her understanding of the situation was. So uh, it was not obvious to anybody who was is it, it, sort of unfamiliar with the way that I communicated at the time, but uh, it really was a, a sort of brutal realization that that I I be I become the the person who who was ignoring the facts and ignoring the very words that the teacher was saying uh, and was becoming so uh, frustrated that mm-hmm. I wasn't as effective as the consultant as mm-hmm. I should have been able to mm-hmm. be. It's so interesting, Sarah, because when you were talking there, it was making me think about um, Donald Schoen's work and the idea of reflecting in action and reflecting on action. And I'm just wondering, as you as you think back on it now, that that sense of frustration of why can't they just see how I see it? Do you feel that was obvious to you internally when you were in the moment with the teacher? Or did you feel you really needed that kind of supervisory space and a space away to do the reflection on action to think, oh, actually, hang on a second. I, that Yeah, I'm not quite where I authentically where I'm supposed to be right now. I 100% needed supervision. Okay. Um, because I wasn't seeing it at the time, and uh, you know, part of this the supervision, we would reflect on what we, how we thought the uh, experience went, uh, and I was hearing things that weren't being said um, and weren't being implied by uh, the teacher. Uh, so it was through only through that process of actually transcribing word for word uh, what was being said uh, and, and and long sections of the of the transcript of the uh, actual recording uh, that I came to realiz- realization that my uh, my emotions and my feelings uh, towards the teacher were based on my own misinterpretations of what she was saying uh, because of all of the emotions surrounding uh, the situation surrounding the student, uh, and it was uh, it was definitely a supervision was a necessity. Supervision is you know in psychology the way that information is passed to the the next generation, and that more than than anything opened my eyes to the fact that that we're you know fallible and require the the assistance of uh, those who are more experienced and require the assistance of those who are actually objective uh to point out uh the areas where 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 our internal processes aren't uh aren't matching up with uh the actual you know situation on the grounds um so it was definitely supervision was uh not only hugely helpful but i it was something that i don't think that could have came to those kinds of insights without it in the, the chapter in the reflection questions at the end that are hugely helpful and kind of a really good stimulus to sort of make all of us think, um, having read what you've written, you mentioned one about our own personal feelings and the role that they have in professional work. And they're important enough to kind of be suppressed or 
or pushed away. You know, the point you're making now about the role of supervision and allowing you to process those feelings and bring them and, and really understand what might have been going on for you. We'd love to hear your own reflections on on that now and your professional work and how you make use of those. How does that play out for you now? Yeah, I think it's always um, a a constant presence. I think that to deny your own feelings, especially when it's in a field that you have such a emotional reason for entering, uh, I think it's counterproductive to pretend that uh, feelings are are irrelevant. Uh, and the uh, s- students who I've worked with uh, over the years, some of them for four or five years at a stretch, that there is going to be a, uh, a connection that you develop uh, with them that um, you want to see them continue to do well and you want to uh, acknowledge the uh, the progress that they have made, even when uh, it's not what everybody in the situation uh, wishes it could be. Um, and for me, it, it, it most often uh, happens in the realm of uh, of behavior, uh, where some of the the more challenging uh, students behaviorally are the ones that I uh, have ended up working with uh, historically. Uh, and one student in particular that um uh, that I'm thinking about, I've worked with him for uh, five years at my first school placement. You see the growth year on year where uh, he's a different student in the uh, sixth grade than he was uh, in the second grade and still having some behavioral difficulties uh, within the classroom, uh, which are real uh, and which are causing disruptions for uh, for the teacher. Uh, so there's this dual sort of tension where you want to acknowledge the student's progress through the year, uh, but also acknowledge that, uh, that this teacher who is frustrated by the student uh, being a disruption, their reality is true also, uh, that it is true that, uh, that there are certain things the student's doing that is disrupting the educational environment, and, uh, and that's the teacher's priority. So my push has been, you know, the, the, the challenge for me has been to not minimize the, the teacher's feelings by saying, oh, but you should have seen them a few years ago, but to celebrate the students, say, look, three years ago, uh, you would have handled this situation in a much more disruptive way, and we have to work on the situation that is causing problems now, saying to the teacher, yes, it's true that, the, the, that this student is causing a disruption in the classroom. Let's continue to make progress with this student because uh, we uh, have seen that they're able to uh, to make uh, progress and, uh, and manage their emotions. Uh, so what can we do uh, in this situation now? Uh, and also not letting the, the, the teacher kind of run away and lose objectivity uh, on their own uh, and view the student as a, a lost cause because evidence you know, suggest that it isn't. And we always come into the process with the expectation and with the foundational belief that all students can learn, whether that's uh, academically or behaviorally, that no student is a lost cause. So keeping all of those uh, different emotions and different feelings and different uh, perspectives existing at the same time in tension, uh, because they're all very real and having to take a step back and uh, letting the problem solving process be the guide uh, and trying to be as objective as possible uh, while also not denying the emotionality that is inherent in the situation because 
Uh, if you deny that, you're uh, likely to miss something that is uh, that is hindering your effectiveness. Yeah, I think that's that's really kind of like helpful to hear back, if that makes sense. I think sometimes it's quite difficult to hold your own emotions when you want to advocate so much for the young person. And then obviously you might have seen the progress that the child has made over a couple of years. And this is a new teacher that's just come in. And it's like you said, still disrupting her classroom environment, which is her priority and kind of the different priorities that we might hold as consultants coming into the school but the teachers have in their own classrooms and kind of had to have to hold both of them in mind and um, but I guess also like another thing that you kind of mentioned in your reflective questions was also about the, the demographics of like the consultation that you had and you know you as an African-American male consultant and the consultee being an Asian female teacher and then the client being a five-year-old Caucasian boy and like these dimensions and the cultural constellations basically and how it's really important for cultural responsive practice. And I was wondering if you might tell us a little bit more about your reflections on that in the consultation. As I mentioned in, in, in this chapter, the there were uh, some inter- interesting uh, racial and ethnic and demographic dynamics kind of overall. Uh, for whatever reason, the, the, the thing that kind of preeminently uh, came to the uh, the forefront for me was not uh, my you know, identity as a person of color, but uh, as uh, seeing this uh, young boy who was struggling in class and uh, and seeing you know, at the time what I thought was uh, someone who was slightly behind, but who was uh, in a way being sort of unfairly uh, unfairly pegged with the the, the potential to uh, to be retained in grade or to receive special education services, and I was you know took myself back to being a, a little kindergarten student and learning my letters and. Uh, didn't have as many uh, struggles as this student had, but uh, also the educational expectations at that point were very different. So I, I kind of identified with uh, with the student uh, that uh, that was uh, that was struggling, and maybe it was just in general my student oriented uh, student oriented attitude. Uh, continuing kind of over the years of uh, working in uh, in schools and environments where uh, a lot of the uh, the students were are, are black and Latino students, and intentionally placing myself in situations where uh, where that's a challenge, and the demographics of the teaching staff not necessarily uh, matching the, the the demographics of the uh, of the students. That has been something that, especially now, you know, a decade on, uh, is becoming uh, more and more borne out in the research that uh, that demographics matter uh, in terms of uh, how we see and how we uh, interact with students. That is something that wasn't wasn't something that was explicit in the uh, in the situation, especially since the demographic match with the uh, with the student wasn't uh, a one to one one to one match, but uh, uh, it is continuing to be something that uh, through the years of uh, being in the field uh, is something that we we attempt to be aware of. Again, discipline is a uh, a, a big catalyst for that where uh, young African-American boys are disciplined you know, far harsher than their than their white counterparts. And there's a lot of over-identification for certain uh, learning disabilities or other disabilities here in the States, uh, particularly ADHD. Disciplinary practices are, uh, are, are disproportionate. So that is something that continues to be uh, an important thing to uh, to reflect on. 
uh, and to be in situations where a uh, student who's placed before me uh, is, you know, a demographic match, a young African-American boy, a lot of the times is something that I don't take lightly that uh, that is entering. Um, the, it, it is a factor in the way that that I uh, interpret certain behaviors and advocate for uh, for students and uh, am kind of hypervigilant to uh, to want to ensure that uh, that there's fair treatment, and that's something the the the, the badge of an advocate is something that I wear proudly mm. uh, because it is uh, to overall to the benefit of the student, and and for that I'll sacrifice a little bit of objectivity uh, to err on the side of being less harsh with students and mm. not uh, and ensuring that they are treated with dignity, even in ways that are unintentional uh that the uh teacher or the education system at large might be uh treating them unfairly mm. i mean our the the data in in the uk sounds sort of similar to what what you've described Cyril and, and I guess one of the things that's something that feels absolutely necessary to hold in mind when practicing consultation is that while absolutely we're talking about a relationship of a consultee and consultant coming together and a need to kind of accept the representations of of the consultee and to be respectful and and to work with them that doesn't mean agreeing with bias stereotype and discrimination now those that maybe enacted on a very uh, organizational level where kind of an organizational consultancy offered to sort of the senior leadership team where the head can, you know, looking at like, look at our referrals. How come we've got this particular cohort being over or indeed underrepresented in the kinds of work that we're being asked to do and so on and so forth. But also critically in the context of individual relational interaction with the consultee, the job is not to collude or go along with or so be so focused on the relationship and kind of connecting that you lose the possibility of challenge because it's not really a relationship of um you know we're here to get along and I really want you to like me and think that I'm very good which of course is you know part of wanting to be helpful and um, that actually helpful can mean challenge um and I guess yeah it was it was really on that basis then just to ask you about in terms of say social justice advocacy and consultation do you see a, a role um in as much as other work may be really helpful around that that there is a space within consultancy work to also act as a as an advocate for something more just and more fair. Yeah, I, I absolutely do, and I think it, it occurs on on multiple different levels. Um, one on the the individual basis, as you mentioned, that there absolutely is a appropriate place and a need for direct challenge when uh, when there is a thought or a possibility that uh, that bias might be uh, influencing the treatment of a student. Um, again, discipline comes to uh, the forefront in terms of uh, what might what what one might uh, encounter on a day to day basis, but referrals to other kind of exclusionary programs or less rigorous academic programs. Um, that is absolutely if you have a situation where you're working with a teacher and or another staff member helping to resolve a particular problem that um, that's when it, it, it would be okay to press and challenge a teacher and say that this student their their behavior isn't significantly worse than uh, than the than this other student from a different demographic group yet they're being punished more harshly and traditionally have been they're being watched with a closer eye they're 
their emotional outbursts are being uh, policed harder than uh, than the way that you treat other students and identifying the problem because that is uh, in a lot of ways a, a a vital part of that you know teacher or staff members growth I think on on the on the larger uh, sort of uh, macro systems wide level there's room for consultation within that uh, as well to uh, to be that uh, the advocacy advocacy piece that's missing the objective analysis of data regarding disproportionality in certain both positive and negative outcomes identifying why African-American students are, you know, not represented in gifted and talented programs and not referred as often. Uh, why do our discipline numbers look the way that they are? Uh, why uh, are uh, there relatively few uh, Black and Latino students in uh, advanced placement programs on the high school level? How are we uh, providing for uh, for these students in a way uh, that's equitable? In what ways are there is the uh, system that we have now uh, set up in a way that uh, is impacting them without a particular person that is that has their hand on the wheel that's guiding the situation because it might just be uh, that the way that we uh, identify what is a problem quote unquote the the, the way that uh, students tend to you know communicate from different demographic groups might be. Uh, might be another one. Uh, there are certain things that are stigmatized and uh, identified as a problem from day one uh, that people on the ground could, you know, wash their hands of and say, "Look, I'm not trying to be discriminatory, but it's the way uh, that things are expected to be. These, these are the ways that we uh, that we run things, and uh, technically, every individual has deniability, but uh, the system as a whole needs um, needs to be readjusted, needs to, to be changed. So uh, I think that the role that uh, consultation can have uh, within that realm is uh, identifying the, you know, the person uh, within that system who has, you know, the biggest impact and walking with them through the data and identifying uh, the way things are running now and the way the data is analyzed, the way uh, that the, the the cogs are moving uh, and working through a, another sort of very difficult process of changing culture uh, and, and um, again this is something that that is measured in months and years not days and weeks but ensuring that the problem because it's not attributable to one individual that it doesn't just get brushed off and ignored um, and that's a you know, something over in the states that if you follow the political discourse that we're having uh, these ongoing debates over the history of systemic oppression and uh, and ways that uh, history is playing out and mirroring itself in the day-to-day process of things, particularly within the schools and the ways that we educate people about that and um, the ways that we ensure that uh, diversity and inclusion is uh, is one of the uh, considerations that we make. Um, people aren't all in agreement about what the appropriate place of that is, but I think uh, as you know, consultants and for some listeners, listeners as future consultants, that system is uh, something that might need to be reformed uh, as well. Uh, systems consultation is 
a uh, a very different beast from the traditional case-based consultee centered consultation um but it is kind of ultimately the purpose of consultation is to build capacity of the system to uh handle you know concerns in, in a way that is less reliant on intervening when there's when there's a crisis um and one of those considerations is social justice and is equity and uh, ensuring that uh, bias within the system isn't isn't hindering the work in a way that is identifiable and changeable uh, and producing equitable outcomes is something we should all be striving towards. I was just thinking about the the value that you placed on supervision and the importance of supervision in your own learning about becoming a consultant and consulting effectively. And it was, I was just then wondering about for, for example, teachers in the States who may need a learning space to think about actually how come I keep, you know, disciplining that student in a particular way or making use of the behavior policy in this particular way. Are there those kinds of spaces where you can have a, a long-term, genuine and authentic relationship with somebody who can help you reflect on how come I am doing these things? Yeah, I think that it's it's somewhat of a challenge within the uh, within the the school setting because there are every teacher is seemingly on multiple different groups and professional learning communities uh, and, you know, largely with fellow teachers, either on a grade-based level or on a, a content level where the you know, English teachers will, will meet together, the math teachers will te- meet together. And largely, a, a lot of times those groups are, uh, one, focused on a- academic uh, outcomes, which which is uh, understandable. Uh, but a lot of times, at least this is kind of in my uh, experience, that the, the, the grouping together of, of, of teachers uh, can sometimes lead to uh, maybe a little bit of, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit of groupthink and the, the the tendency to uh, to be uh, more of a listening ear rather than the the, the one to uh, to challenge uh, fellow teachers to get them to think more deeply about uh, that process, especially if the environment isn't explicitly set up for that purpose. Um, I think supervision uh, of the type that psychologists tradition- traditionally get is expressly identified as a place to uh, challenge the psychologist's assumptions and make them more uh, effective um, by both positive uh, reinforcement and also by um, by identifying the areas where the practitioner is uh, in the need to improve their skills because of the multiple demands on uh, teachers and the multiple uh, pressures being pulled in all sorts of directions, you know, largely by their, you know, their administrators and by, you know, speaking of systems, this is another system that is um, very, it, 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 it's a meat grinder for teachers where they, uh, they're being measured in their effectiveness by the academic outcomes of their students, you know, for a, a lot of times for things that they have no control over. You know, they have no control over the students you know, home environments and the uh, baseline you know, educational outcomes that they come into, or educational levels that they come into uh, their classroom with. Uh, so teachers are facing a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. And they're, you know, in my opinion, one of the most scrutinized uh, professions uh, in the world, you know, especially, you know, 
I can say for the United States in the, in the country uh, that uh, teachers are uh, underappreciated for what they do and not uh, afforded the opportunity to uh, to have those kinds of supervisory relationships and reflect on their process um, because what matters for accountability on the uh, teacher and for the administrator because of the pressure from the district office is uh, making sure that students are making adequate yearly progress and making sure the numbers are filled in on a spreadsheet and the, the numbers are going up. And that's the pressure that's on the teachers because year year on year, that's what they're being judged by. And uh, I think a lot of teachers would remain in the field if they had that, if not supervision, that mentorship so that they feel like their skills are growing. And amidst all the pressures that they're faced with that that they they are continuing to uh, develop in their own skills and they feel more and more competent uh, even if the uh, challenges aren't departing because uh, I think that it, it probably would take a long time to reform that system but uh, my, my hope is that you know through consultation and through schools, continually opening their eyes to uh, the benefits of a problem-solving process, that that process not be uh, another another uh, cudgel to the teachers to beat them down, but uh, it be what it has the potential to be. Somebody uh, objective, somebody who is not evaluating them coming into the situation to uh, help uh, introduce this process of uh, problem identification and, and intervention development. That that the the the, the fact that I you know, make it clear uh, whenever I have the, the chance to uh, do some consultation, I'm not an evaluator. I'm not uh, I'm not the one who is going to determine whether or not you have a job. I'm here for immediate purpose of helping in the situation that you've referred, uh, but also in the long term purpose of. Uh, empowering the teacher through the the work that we do, and I, if if I were the uh, the 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 sovereign over education within the United States, um, that would probably be one of my uh, the 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 first things that I would do to um, to provide teachers a place where they can continue to grow and feel empowered and feel supported, uh, and at the same time become more effective in their practice. Wow, that sounds like so amazing if that was <laughs> possible. <laughs> and, and I guess like something you said about, you know, empowering and helping teachers grow in kind of that space for consultation to kind of support that in a way. Do you have any advice for like trainees who want to support and empower teachers, but also find a way to challenge like anti-discriminatory practice and 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 you know, challenge some of those things while without breaking the relationship. I think there's sometimes a bit of a fear. Oh, if I challenge them, they're not going to like me and I'm still training. And you might not always have the time to see the long term effects. You might have like two, two years in a placement. But just in the moment, ha do you have any advice around challenging? Yeah. And, and this is kind of the the overall theme of relationship building that, uh, that, that was in the chapter. Uh, and the benefit of not being a trainee anymore is that you, when you're in a school placement, you're a part of that community, uh, that you uh, have a relationship with those teachers beyond 
uh, the, this individual case that you're uh, that you, that you're working. I always made it a point. You know, the the the, the school psychologists in uh, in the states uh, frequently they are assigned to multiple different schools, where they might be two days in one school, two days in another, and another school there. They're just checking in on. Uh, I've been fortunate uh, up until uh, this year to be just in one school at one time. Uh, and even this year, I'm, I have two different placements where I work. And it's a bit of a, a unique situation, as we talked about a little bit during the, the pre-show. But one of my practices at the beginning of every single year, uh, within the first week, uh, I had visited every single teacher's classroom uh, to uh, ensure that I made an introduction to uh, to the students uh, and also to the teachers, especially if they were new, um, that my presence was felt throughout the throughout the building. Everyone knew where my office was. Uh, the students knew I was a person to uh, to come to if they you know, ever felt frustrated and needed a break. Um, that I was present, you know, throughout the hallways. So when it came came time to to enter the consultative relationship, I wasn't viewed at by the teacher. Uh, as somebody who was coming in from the outside, but I was a member of the community, and this was uh, part of what the job was—that uh, uh, that they saw me every day throughout the hallways and you know at lunches with the students and uh, checking in on the cool things that are happening within the classroom, sitting in uh, on lessons, so that when I work one-on-one -on -one with them, uh, I'm able to have that groundwork of a relationship already built uh, to be able to. Uh, discuss some of the more challenging um, uh, challenging topics to uh, discuss ways in which the students might might be treated unfairly ways in which uh, students are you know for example put out of the classroom more than uh, might be necessary and uh, and put into uh, uh, exclusionary uh, disciplinary uh, situations um, it, it comes from the the, the groundwork and often different difficult work of, uh, of being you know, a member of the community and being uh, responsive on a day-to-day -day basis when uh, situations arrive to help uh, help a student regulate and then return them to a class where they could be more effectively and then checking in on the teacher to make sure that the, the crisis didn't continue. And even with that, challenging teachers on, uh, on what might be uh, unconscious bias is not easy. And it's not, I don't think it's ever going to be easy because you are essentially challenging a core belief of theirs. And, you know, that process of them coming to a potential realization that this might be uh, impacting their, uh, their interactions with students, uh, that is going to be a difficult process with them. But uh, that groundwork and that foundation of relationship is uh, something that enables it to uh, to be possible. So I would say that that is probably my my best advice to uh, front load the building of the, the relationships to uh, ensure that uh, as you're in the school that uh, your presence is more than just a, a nameplate on a door and an uh, office phone number to call when somebody's in crisis, but that you're a member of that community just as you know, the Spanish teacher would be, or just as the the, the, the gym teacher or the, you know, uh, first grade lead teacher, that you are somebody who uh, who is a part of that school. So that is, you know, the challenge of being 
of the, uh, the, the psychologist because you're not a teacher, but you're also not administration. You're in this weird nebulous middle ground, making sure that others see that you are vital to the school um, is, uh, is a, a worthwhile, um, a worthwhile challenge. Mm-hmm. One that I found has uh, really um, been a boon to mm. my work. Mm. No, that's really, because when you were talking, I was thinking that um, I don't know any psychologist here who has their name played on a door in a school <laughs> because the ratios are very different, I think, and we wouldn't necessarily have that frequency and intensity of contact. However, I think the point about even just visiting as much as you can do, being present, not because there is a problem or an issue or or there's a specific set task, but just that people become more aware of who you are and what, what you're about. And those informal opportunities, whether it might be coming just a little bit earlier or staying on a little bit afterwards or being around, say, for a parent's evening or just things where you can try and take all of that really rich community belonging. I'm here to be part of this school, um, although we can't maybe do it in, in, in quite as rich and intensive a way that you were describing. I think still to be able to convey a sense of being together and this point about community. And I it's interesting about kind of as we come towards the end, Cyril, sort of going back to where we started and that point that you'd made about connecting to school when you were a student and that sense of, yeah, it really made me think about belonging and how much belonging is key is, but, you know, as a student to feel like you belong to your classroom and you belong to your school and you belong mentally and emotionally inside your teacher's mind, that there is space for you to be there. It's a really interesting point to kind of come towards the end on about school psychologists belonging to the community that they work within um, and to use the relational sense of belonging to be both supportive and challenging in service of growing. Would you would you see your work now, um, considering that you are in a more of a youth justice type context, and it is, you know, quite a different maybe um, profile perhaps of of staff who may be working there. Do you feel that sense of belonging and connecting? is as important even though the context is is that much different yeah it is it, it is just as important um and in a lot of ways i've taken you know measures in myself to uh, ensure that i'm continuing that uh that habit of being a uh, a vital member of the, of the school community even as i'm in these uh two separate uh secured settings and who knows what my schedule is going, going to be like from uh, from day to day and, and, and week to week. So uh, one of the things that I've uh, started to do fairly recently, this is you know a year into uh, being in my, my current setting, uh, is at one of the, the sites where I feel kind of particularly detached from what's going on in the classroom. Uh, I started going with our school dean as he is making his rounds through to uh, to every classroom and every unit within the school to check in and see how the uh, students are doing in the morning, see if there are any situations that might uh, impact the uh, the class during the day. Um, and already, you know, I'm just uh, about a month into uh, making that a habit that every time I'm, I'm at that school, uh, I'm making the morning rounds with the dean. 
um, I've seen that pay dividends because that was a situation where I could easily go to uh, the cubicle in the office where where I had my seat and sit there all day. Uh, there's a psychologist here in the state, Charles Barrett, who says any day where you don't have an interaction with a student is a wasted day. And it's easy to sit down with the evaluations that have been done in the past and spend several days just focus on writing reports. But the overcoming that inertia, still making time to do those important tasks and make sure that that work is done effectively and at the same time be a presence within the uh, within the school and in the classroom. And uh, a lot of times in the other setting where I'm at, I'll do a lot of my work within the classroom where uh, our students come for uh, for their daily classes. So I'll be sitting in there and uh, able and willing if a student needs help uh, with, uh, we're working on quadratic uh, equations uh, just the other day and sitting down and working with them on the FOIL method and talking about uh, placing uh, the equations in standard order. That is something that is, you know, that, that's not time wasted. Uh, as long as I'm able to make sure that my evaluations are done under deadline, that presence in the classroom is uh, time that is, uh, that is well spent, time that will save you later down the line. It'll, it'll pay dividends in uh, interactions with students and also interactions with teachers when they see that uh, that you're not just coming in, sitting down, writing, not talking with anybody, uh, but you're there within the classroom and that throughout the day uh, they see you. Uh, so like I say, over overcoming that uh, inertia, it is uh, it is a challenge even you know for me year, years into uh, this practice, but um, again, it's re reflecting and uh, understanding uh, ways in which, the system kind of forces you to uh, to to operate in certain ways, uh, and uh, making a decision and strategizing ways uh, that you're going to within that system, within the expectations uh, that have been placed on you, uh, to ensure that you're independently taking steps to become more effective. Yeah, that's that's really kind of nice to kind of end with. Um, and I, though I really want to ask you so much about your current um, placement and um, working in the youth justice system, um, unfortunately, I guess we are coming to the end. And, and as we do, um, we'd like to ask our guests if there's one book or chapter um, that you would recommend reading. Um, I, I have a confession I couldn't kind of narrow it down. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Uh, one, one is just uh, in general, uh, especially for uh, students who are in university uh, to keep up with the, 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 the current research that's in the field to, uh, as journals come out, you know, you, university students also oftentimes have access that those of us in the field uh, don't. Um, so it's actually quite hard to, 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 to find access to journal articles for the research that's coming out. So I'd encourage you to uh, to make it part of your, your daily or weekly, monthly habit to uh, see what the relevant journals are saying. Um, but I have two books that, um, one of which kind of revolutionized my own uh, practice that's not specifically field related, and another one that 
uh, I'm chewing on right now. Uh, the first is uh, the Checklist manifest Manifesto, uh, a, a tool, uh, Gawande, um, and the importance of, um, you know, highlighting the importance of uh, structuring the ways that, the ways that you do things and, you know, building out a checklist uh, to ensure that you're not uh, skipping steps. You know, I think I mentioned in the chapter that the contracting phase that, that I had kind of rushed through that, that, um, you know, having a, a, a checklist in front of me to force me to go through the steps as they needed to be, uh, to, to need to be worked through. Um, that's something that I could have used back then. And I'm incorporating in my practice now, I have a lot of checklists that I, uh, that I, uh, go through to, uh, help me uh, save time and become um, more effective. Uh, but the one that I'm showing on right now is, you know, related to the uh, the theme of uh, of improving your practice, uh, and it's one that is targeted towards th- psychotherapy. Uh, but it's called Better Results: uh, Using Deliberate Deliberate Practice to Improve Therapeutic Effectiveness, um, and it's coming from the perspective of the yeah, the the people who are um, effective in just about any field, uh, they spend time uh, setting goals and working on their weaknesses and honing in on the areas where they see uh, our area of need and grinding out time to 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 work on those uh, so that when uh, things are put into the bigger picture and put into practice. Uh, that those weaknesses aren't an anchor dragging you down. Um, and I come from a from an athletic background, so the concept of setting goals on very sort of nebulous concepts are, uh, are is appealing to me. Uh, during the the, the case um, that I reflected on in the chapter, uh, in order to work on my communication skills, uh, I wrote the word reflection on my hands. Uh, so that I could look down on it and remind myself to practice that skill because it wasn't a natural skill for me to apply. And every once in a while, I would glance down and remind myself, no, don't ask a question here. Reflect emotions, restatements, you know, be, you know, so that uh, the idea of deliberative practice, that taking time, uh, even years into uh, being in the field, uh, to identify areas of weakness, set a goal, track progress. It is something that I think there's an untu- intuitive understanding, especially you know coming from the uh, the, the the problem solving process perspective. Um, but forcing yourself to turn a mirror on yourself and apply it to your own professional growth. It's um, something that I've read recently that is uh, definitely going to be a, a reference book for me uh, in the future. Amazing. Thank you so much, Cyril. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed greatly this conversation. Thanks for the opportunity.